All right, welcome into the Hoist the Colors podcast. It is Sunday night, and the HTC podcast is back, and we're back with a familiar guest. It has been a while since we've been on this channel uh, because of our radio show at 94.3 The Game, but we have the return of Brett Hickman down at Anderson, who is getting ready for their inaugural season in 2024, so he's been very busy, but Brett, you guys are now on the eve of your first season ever, I know you've been busy with that, but can't 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 be happier to have you back, man. Uh, and, and we got some exciting news to talk about. But welcome back to the HCC Pod. Yeah, man, it's great to be back and kind of swimming right here. We just got through a fall developmental season, been practicing a lot of football, but had a chance to watch a lot this um, this fall and spend some time with my family. And uh, obviously, never the Pirates are never far from my mind, and just. Just glad to be back on and talk about some of the transitions that are going on in the ECU program as as they move forward into 2024. No doubt, two and ten coming off uh, the season, and we we expected big changes. There were big changes, Brett, and and just a really we'll, we'll kind of go through just. I want to add, first off, uh, we are live on YouTube, Facebook. We already got a bunch of of live viewers. So if you want to drop a question. There, we'll get to it throughout our show. We'll uh, see how long we can go. Uh, both of us busy and tired, but hey, we're, we're here for the Pirates uh, and it should be a fun show. Uh, one other announcement before we get going. So I've gotten a lot of questions. Hey, what's happened to the Hoist of Colors podcast? So we're still doing a daily show, 94.3 The Game. It's on a different channel. If you search Hoist the Colors, 94.3 The Game, you can find us there. So this channel has not been as active due to that uh, venture we've started, but we're still going to do this podcast uh, definitely as much as possible. And obviously we're getting Brett on this. So happy to have Brett on. And we got a bunch of subscribers to this channel. So glad to be back on this channel, but check us out on the other one as, uh, as, uh, as well. Uh, Bobby Harwood has jumped in the comments section. He has already noticed your title, Brett, a runner up for the OC job. As I did report, you were one of the front runners until, uh, you know, until, until John David Baker beat you out. Yeah, it would have been a uh, – I would have loved to have seen the reaction if uh, Coach Houston hired a Division II defensive coordinator whose play calling experience is limited to two seasons at West Brunswick High School in which uh, I could not find an offensive coordinator. So instead of calling the defense, I switched over to that side of the ball. So that would have been a uh, tough sell to the, uh, to the Pirate Nation, though I think we lit it up for about 27 a game those two years and um yeah but yeah i'm a defensive coach so I, I was not a candidate despite what uh you said yeah we were having some fun hey 27 a game i think pirate fans would have taken that this past year that would that would have led to a lot of wins they'd have a football game coming up if that would have happened for sure 27 a game probably would have gotten them to six or seven in my opinion there's no doubt chuck uh he asks is this live it is live we are live on sunday night Unless you're listening to our podcast version or watching our replay, of course, then we're not live. But we are live as we do this, so drop a question. All right, Brett, the hire, John David Baker, for our subscribers. He was one of the first names we reported involved in the search. Uh, Wednesday, he interviewed. I heard it went extremely well. They had other candidates you know, involved, Chad Morris, uh, Bailey from Ohio State. But it just always felt like they really wanted John David Baker, and he wanted to be here. 
We'll talk to him for the first time on Monday, but just your initial thoughts on the hiring of the Ole Miss co-OC, John David Baker, to be ECU's new coordinator. Yeah, I think when you and I were discussing earlier in the week of, of potential names and, and when it kind of came into focus on your end on who the, the viable candidates were, that's the one that probably made the most sense to me. Um, now, there, there's always a Peter Principle thing when you start dealing with a guy who's really a first-time coordinator or a first-time head coach, you know, that you don't really know until he gets thrown in the fire how good of a job uh, that he's going to do. You know, for instance, there's there's – Slam dunk can't miss head coaches that miss happens all the time. And then there's can't miss slam dunk coordinators that miss and it just doesn't work out. But the guy's got a pedigree. I thought it was important to get a guy who's played quarterback, um, has been in that room in 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 a modern system, for instance, playing at I believe he played at Abilene Christian. Um, and then the 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 people and the quality of offensive coaches that that Coach Baker's worked for is second to none. I mean, when you start seeing guys like Lane Kiffin and, and what, what Lane's done over the course of his career in, in a wide variety of systems, you know, Coach, Coach Kiffin started as a true West Coast guy uh, when, when he was at USC with Pete Carroll and then, of course, morphed when he went to Alabama and got all in on the RPO game and then got hooked up with Kendall Bryles and Jeff Levy and he's implemented – various run schemes and uh, along with the kind of the browse veer and shoot passing games. So, you know, what they've done at Ole Miss is special. I mean, because Ole Miss is not recruiting the same type of player that LSU and Alabama are recruiting. They're just not. And, and they're sitting here with double digit wins two years in a row. Um, but it wasn't just the time with Kiffin, you know, Seth Latrell was a, um, you know, working for him and working for Clay Hilton. Those are two guys that have moved the football uh, wherever they've been and scored a lot of points. Um, you know, Latrell was the OC for Larry Fedora at North Carolina. And I, that, you know, they combined the power run game with, with some air raid principles. And, you know, and I, I really, I really think a lot of, of him. And he obviously he just got promoted at Oklahoma uh, to follow Jeff Levy there. So the guys work for some really good people. Uh, he played quarterback, he checks a lot of the boxes. Um, you know, time's certainly going to tell. But uh, I think the easy thing for Coach Houston to do would have been to hire Chad Morris, you know, proven proven commodity. Um, but I think at that point you're swinging for a single, maybe a double. Uh, this one might be a swing and a miss, strike three, whatever, but it's got the chance to be the home run. And I, I really think that's what he feels like. Uh, this program needs offensively not only to get back to respectability, um, but but to build a football team that can that can be one of the better programs in the AAC moving forward. And with the landscape that's changed in the conference, there's no reason why East Carolina, with the resources, with the fan support, shouldn't be uh, a team that's competing for an AAC championship on a on a you know yearly or at least bi yearly basis, in my opinion. Yeah, especially with the amount of resources the athletic department is putting into football now. You look at what ECU is able to pay this this coordinator and also pay its staff. Overall, ECU ranks near the top of the league in pay, so you expect to be able to compete towards the top of the league. So I think that's definitely um, you know a factor in this. It, you know, two or three years ago, I'm not sure you can make this hire, Brett. So that you got to give the administration credit for stepping up. And, uh, you know, paying these guys, I mean, he's going to be making well over 400000 I do think he will be taking a pay cut. I've heard talks. He may have gotten a two-year deal. 
Uh, we'll try to confirm that. We've requested the the uh, contracts. We'll try to confirm that in the coming days. Uh, Chuck says, I like the hire of a young and energetic coach. I agree, Brett. Also, you mentioned it, Ole Miss. I mean, certainly they get athletes, but compared to their their competition, you know, they're typically not the most talented team in the SEC. So for me, when I looked at the guy from Ohio State, clearly he's done a good job. He's got a bright future, but also Chad Morris at Clemson has some pretty good talent. I definitely wanted a guy who had not necessarily done more with less, but has shown the ability to been around offenses that can scheme up things more so than just yep. win on town alone. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I've always said, you know, I guess 16 years of doing this and a lifetime being around it, you know, with my dad being a being a head coach, I've always thought that defense starts defense starts with uh, depth of personnel, you know, how many quality players can you get and the culture – and the effort of which you play with offense, obviously, I think you need depth of personnel on the O line. You know, if you can be rock solid across the board, that's important. Um, but you got to get difference makers on the offense. That's one way to do it. And East Carolina, two years ago, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that was some revolutionary scheme they had, but there were dudes, you know, at 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 clear positions, whether or not it was Winstead or C.J. Johnson or Ryan Jones or Keaton Mitchell, guys who could score when they touch the ball. But, you know, you don't necessarily have to have uh, the unbelievable people to be an efficient offense. Scheme is far more important on that side of the ball than uh, than I believe depth of personnel and, and culture is on defense. So, if, you know, if offense is – or, pardon me, if defense is 60% personnel, offense is probably about 50% personnel, 40%. I think you can overcome some personnel deficiencies on offense with uh, the ability to scheme some people up. So, you know, that's clearly what they've done at Ole Miss. Um, and, and they do – and we can get into the, the nuts and bolts if you want to, but the ability to run the football um, on those defensive lines in that league is not easy. And they're not just beating their head up against the wall with inside zone and A-gap power and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of misdirection. There's a lot of uh, inside zone schemes, but, you know, running it with a fly sweep and, and reading numbers on when to hand this fly sweep and when to hand off the inside zone. So there's just a lot of creativity in, in creating problems for the defense that I think um, is a really cool thing. And I think people are going to – they're going to see far more variety – uh, particularly in the run game that I think is going to give ECU a, a better chance um, with with the talent that's on hand. And, and of course, you know, if, if you want to get a lot better, you got to go get better players too. Um, and I don't think there's any doubt about that too. All right, we'll, get, we'll talk about the scheme here shortly. I do want to address this question. We talked about it. <laughs> we texted about it, and I figured it would come up. Uh, Chuck wants to know, how do you feel about – John David Baker coaching Ole Miss in the bowl game. That was the report out of Oxford today. I actually like it is what Chuck says because it shows some integrity in coaching your players. Um, I do know he will be on the road for ECU recruiting starting Tuesday, I believe is the plan. He'll actually be on campus tomorrow doing the introductory press conference, probably talking to players, coaches, et cetera. So your thoughts, Brett, on him coaching the bowl game uh, despite taking the OC job at ECU? Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's kind of a nothing burger if people don't understand. Like, if he's going to be at East Carolina recruiting, I think to understand, you got to understand exactly how bowl preparation works, right? So, Ole Miss will not practice this week. 
they won't they probably won't practice until after exams get done on probably December 9th or 10th. Uh, so he's going to be at ECU all the way through then at least recruiting. Um, and then um, the, the portal is open right now, but I think people will confuse uh, the portal window with being the same as the recruiting calendar. The portal is just when kids can enter. I, the recruiting calendar goes dead in Division One. I, I want to say, on December the 18th. So as long as he's working and recruiting for East Carolina between now and December 18th, and he's available when portal guys or mid-year transfers come on campus between now and December the 18th, it's a nothing burger for what he does for himself between December 19th and January 3rd. Uh, because that's a dead period. So you can have contact. You know, we could do a Zoom. Uh, he could do a, a Zoom with a quarterback transfer from whatever, Abilene Christian, since that's where he played, um, on December the 22nd. That kid can't come on campus anyway, and he can do that Zoom from Oxford, Mississippi, as easy as he can from from a hotel in Greenville, North Carolina. So, uh, and, and I think what people don't really realize is once you get on site for a bowl game as a coach, you really don't do that much. Um, you have practice maybe in the morning and then the rest of the day, you'll go back and watch the practice tape, but you got banquets, you got all kinds of these team bowling functions and all that crap. Um, half the time our assistant coaches didn't go to those things. You know, they'd stay in the room and work on uh they'd stay in the room and work on recruiting. They'd go out to eat with their family. So he's got plenty of time in Atlanta and back in Oxford to do plenty of recruiting for East Carolina during that dead window. And then by the time the bowl game's over, I think they play on December 30th, he'll be back at East Carolina by the new year ready for when uh, guys can come back on campus, I believe the third through the seventh of January. So, a big nothing burger. I do think it speaks of. I don't think he'll be very much involved in the bowl, the bowl preparation in terms of the X's and O's for Ole Miss. I think he'll be uh, more working for East Carolina during that time period. You know, probably December tenth through the seventeenth is probably when they'll start putting the game plan together. But as you know from covering it, bowl get bowl practices kind of that first week after exams. You're really working more on the bottom half of your roster. You know, you're you're doing scrimmage stuff with the threes and the fours and the, the guys who redshirted and all that kind of stuff. Um, and an analyst, Lane Kiffin, doesn't care if his tight end coach is there. I can promise you, you know, an analyst can handle that. So when when he shows up to coach the tight ends at Ole Miss in Atlanta, he's, he, he can manage both jobs pretty easily. Or they're not in Atlanta. Where are they at? Cotton Bowl? I think they are doing the peach ball actually. Okay, they're in the peach ball. Yeah. Either way, he's he's he it won't be much of a problem at all. Right. I like that he's getting a chance to experience that too. Yeah. I mean, now he can sell to those guys, hey, if we win the AAC, we're gonna have a great chance to play in a bowl game that I just came from. No doubt. And so I mean, I think your perspective uh brings a lot of light to the situation too. And and just with technology now, you can do you know, you can multitask as a coach uh, easier than ever before. You know, if this was the 90s or something, maybe this would be a little bit of a different story. But, uh, you know, I, I think his, I think a lot of his focus will go on the ECOC job, even if he is also coaching in that bowl game for sure. Now, I'd uh, say but, it's I'd yeah. say it's different if you're the head coach. I think right. the, the quicker you can get on site and meet the dignitaries or meet the athletic department personnel and 
shake the hands of the money people, I think that's a little bit different deal. You know, if, if we were hiring a head football coach, I would want him here right away because there's still work that can be done on campus during that dead period that's not necessarily uh, pertinent to just recruiting. Um, so it, it's kind of a different deal, but in this case, uh, not worried at all. Yeah, we saw that with Scotty Montgomery. I remember that was a whole yeah, that was a terrible whole, idea. That was a whole ordeal. Uh, Brett Hickman is with us, and glad to have Brett back on the show. And so let, let's dive into a little bit of the scheme, uh, Brett, at least, at least what we see from Ole Miss. Now, with John David Baker, he may bring a lot of that, but he may also pull from what he learned under Seth Trail, Graham Harrell at North Texas. Also may pull, obviously, from his time at USC, although Clay Helton, you know, clearly worked under – uh, Kiffin as well at one point, so you got that branch. But very curious to see what his style will be. But when you watch Ole Miss, and I did some watching over the weekend as well, you just see the amount of motion, uh, the amount of design, uh, you know, different designs in the running game. Like you said, not just inside zone, not just uh, ISO power up the middle or something like that. Just a lot of different creative ways to get the ball, stretch the field horizontally, stretch it vertically. So just that's kind of the concept. When you watch the film of Ole Miss, what do you see that really stands out about this game? Yeah, I, I think it's morphed um, all the advantages that really Chad Morris and Gus Malzahn had a few, you know, a decade ago as it relates to tempo. I think it's morphed a lot of the advantages of tempo uh, with with the RPO game uh, and and really two passing schemes, both the air raid and, and the Art Riles stuff. Um, so, you know, he's kind of meshed, I, I say he, I'm talking about Coach Kiffin now, uh, he's kind of meshed, he's created this beautiful conglomeration of combining, you know, these guys who are at the forefront of the tempo game um, with with you know, really a, a beautiful college-style passing game that East Carolina people are going to be familiar with. Like, I think it's important to say like this, Nothing East Carolina's done offensively under Donnie Kirkpatrick was unsound. Like every team in America runs inside zone. Every team in America runs four verts. Every team in America runs some version of mesh. Um, what I think there is, I think there's going to be more scheme. There's definitely going to be more motion. There's going to be more creative formationing. Um, you know, for instance, I, pretty much East Carolina lined up in, in basic 11 personnel stuff, not a whole lot of bunches, not a whole lot of stacks, not a whole lot of shifting, um, not a whole lot of formation to the sideline. That's one thing that I think Ole Miss does a lot that puts people in a bind. They'll put trips receivers into the boundary and try and over, overload the short side of the field. And that, and that causes a whole new set of problems for a defense. You know, do you, do you align your – your nickel or what East Carolina calls the Sam to the strength of the formation, or do you align that guy to the wide side of the field? Well, if you start saying we're going to align him to the wide side of the field all the time, now you've got that rush guy out there as the overhang defender underneath the trip. So you got pass coverage problems over there. Well, if you line them up to the boundary all day, but they're always going to have the threat of running motion and back to the field. Now we've got a lesser athlete, that rush guy in space, trying to force the edge on the run, cover the pass. You know, you put a worse athlete with more space with more space problems. So there's just there's a whole lot more going on, and they're going to do it at a faster tempo. Um, the thing that I am 
most excited about is just uh, the variety of which they do in the run game. You know, Ole Miss has ran the football at an elite level the last two years, and some of that was Quinshawn Junkins. He's, he was really good last year. I, I don't know exactly what they've had going on this year, but last year Dart really struggled, and they were still able to move the ball and score points. This year Dart's been a little bit better, but they still run the football really well. They're They're willing to run the quarterback. And anybody who's followed me on the boards the last couple of years, that's something that I've I hammered for the entire time Holt Naylor's was there. And obviously after seeing the backup situation this year, I, you know, we're not at practice every day. There's probably a reason why they didn't do that. But, you know, Lane Kiffin's got no problem running Jackson Dart in the SEC. And, um, you know, that team's ran the football uh, at a elite clip. And I'm, I'm really expecting to see uh, ECU improve tremendously in that in that instance. When you watch them, Brett, how fast were they going on a regular you know, clip as far as tempo? Like, were they snapping it with 25, 30 seconds left on the play clock? Did it vary? I mean, we've seen very little tempo at ECU under, under Donnie Kirkpatrick and, and under Mike Houston the last five years. So that's got to that's gotta be something that changes, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it is the – it is faster than, than what ECU's been running. I, as a defensive coordinator, when I, I've never been as concerned about somebody who goes super fast the whole time. What I like about the Kiffin stuff is is how multi-tempoed they are. You know, they'll go, they'll go, um, you know, you'll go super fast, and then you got to get a call in, and you think they're about to go super fast again, so you make a quick call. Then he does the old dummy check with you with everybody on the line, and He's, he knows what you're in, so he goes, and it's a little bit slower that time. And then the next time, okay, is he going to dummy check me so I don't want to show my hand, so I make the wrong call, yada, yada, yada. So um, it, it's it's multi-tempoed and it's multi-formational, and it can cause a whole lot of problems. No doubt. Uh, and, and the other thing too, Brad, I mean, just if you want to do a lot, obviously you got to be able to install it in a – shorter amount of time we all know how important this upcoming season is so you know this will be a first time coordinator trying to to do those things trying to hire a staff we'll get into that in a little bit as well trying to fill out his offensive staff but how realistic do you think it is in one off season as a first time coordinator he can not only bring the personnel in that he needs but also install enough of a scheme to make this as effective as ec wants to be and I guess the other side of it is, assuming ECU's defense returns basically intact, you know you've got a pretty good defense to to bounce some things off of early in the season if you struggle at all. Yeah, I mean, it's easier now than it's ever been to uh, replenish a roster, you know, because of the transfer portal. Um, now, we can get into the, the nuts and bolts as to whether or not that's the way to do it year after year. You know, if you're going to be successful – uh, and build a program, I still think it starts with high school recruiting and player development. But in terms of um, the ability to replenish a roster right now, you can go out and get pieces. You know, that that portal is full of guys who can catch the – and they don't have to necessarily be great players. But, for instance, East Carolina's gotten Chase Soul and Jaden Johnson, who I don't know if they're true number ones. Uh, person. I think Chase can be. Um, but they're good players, and they're guys that can come in and, and be – contributors right away. I do think it's a little bit harder uh, to find that on the OL. Um, 
but you know the key to this whole thing is just getting enough depth pieces and of course finding a trigger man uh, that can do it as far as it gets it as far as getting the system in again it's actually gotten easier to do that you still get your 15 spring days you get more time with your kids in the summer than you used to like when i was in in school you know when when you sent your guys home in the summer uh basically they were with mike golden all summer and that was it and then you had player-led practices and things of that nature now you can do ota type type stuff uh training camps a little bit longer um the ability to have stuff online whether or not it's through visio or powerpoint zoom meetings so i actually think it's easier now than it's ever been to to quick fix something uh if that makes any sense Tony Hicks says, I'm only making an assumption, but JDB's top priority will be to fill the quarterback room with who will be the difference makers in 2024. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, if you're running an RPO, uh, I mean, if you're running any offense, Brett, the quarterback is obviously of utmost importance. But this guy, I mean, just ru- looking at this offense, quarterbacks got to be able to read defenses, make decisions. So, I mean, it's it's vital. Now, I've, I've talked with some people around the program. I don't know what the exact plan is at quarterback, but I've gotten the feeling they've got something up their sleeve they feel pretty good about. But certainly that will be the storyline in the coming weeks, seeing what quarterback is brought in. I mean, it's guys, if you if you need to know the importance of quarterback in in this day and age, and I'm a defensive coach, you know, I believe in running the football. I believe in playing great defense. I believe in playing great special teams. But if you want to compete at the highest level, of any level, you know, from high school all the way to the National Football League, it starts and ends with that trigger man. And uh, East Carolina's got to get one. You know, they got to get one that can efficiently run this offense, that can run it at a, at a breakneck pace, that can distribute the ball. Um, you know, it just – the whole engine fails to crank when you don't have that position taken care of. And, uh, you know, it is of the utmost importance. And I'll be honest, I think I'd probably bring in two, you know, right now. I've seen the two guys they got on campus right now throw with my own two eyeballs. And uh, honestly, I think the best thrower between those two is the walk-on, Ty Little. Like, he can rip it. He was in our league at, uh, at when I was the head coach at West Brunswick. He can absolutely throw it. And Raheem Jeter is a little bit better of an athlete. Uh, there's going to be a place for that in this type of offense. But can a guy get up there under center and consistently distribute the ball, make right decisions with all of that, um, and, and crank the engine, so to speak? You know, that That's everything. Um, and, and we need one in place by whatever the date that second semester starts. He needs to be in there meeting with JDB um, the whole month of January and ready to crank that thing up by mid-late February in spring practice. Yeah, I think, I mean, at minimum, Brett, you got to bring in two, and that's not counting Cole Hodge, the the freshman who I like. He'll be in in the summer. Unfortunately, his he won, just won a second straight state championship. He's a good player, but he, he can't enroll early due to his high school, uh, due to where the semesters fall, so that hurts him. So I feel like unless Alex Flynn comes back, and you know I don't know where that stands right now, even if he does come back, I think you got to bring in two because we know Mason Garcia is gone. Raheem Jeter, unproven at this point, tied a little walk-on. So, for me, it's like how do you balance maybe trying to find a grad transfer or an upperclassman who has played and then maybe potentially a guy for the future, either Juco. You know, they've offered the kid out of – out of uh, they used to be at Southern Miss and uh, now 
They're recruiting him and his teammate Cam Wright out of the JUCO ranks. I don't know what John David Baker's assessment is of him, if he can you know win with him in this offense. But you got to find a way to get two and kind of juggle that. The good news is there's some NIL money coming in. I think they can you know spend a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on a quarterback and still have enough left over to you know fill some other holes. But uh, yeah, I think you got to go two. It's just uh, I guess it's a balancing act of trying to you know, sell to two guys, hey, you can come in, compete for the starting position. But also, you really want a proven commodity at this point, Brad, I mean, if if possible. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm going after any anyone and everyone who's played football at the FBS level to start with, whether or not that's a Mac or a Sunbelt guy, a guy who's played snaps at, at, the, at the G5 level. And I'm probably taking a flyer on a guy who it just hasn't worked out at the biggest level who's got the ability, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and I, I include FCS guys in with that first realm. You know, if a guy's lit it up at the FCS level, uh, they can come in and play. I forget the guy who played at Oregon a few years ago but was at Eastern Washington. I mean, uh, Vernon Adams maybe. You know, a guy like that can come in. He can play at East Carolina if he's a proven commodity. It's just I would take one guy who's played and then maybe take a flyer on a guy that you just really love his raw talent and, um, you know, that's really willing to bet on himself, for instance. And, uh, you know, competition's a good thing. And if you're if if you're recruiting a guy who's afraid of competition, he ain't the guy. Just that's the way I see it. So money talks, make it competitive from an NIL standpoint and, and see who wants to come in and compete, knowing that it's going to come down. But if you if, if he's asking it to be handed to him, he needs to go somewhere else that that that, that doesn't fit. Uh, that doesn't fit the East Carolina way. Uh, sure as hell don't fit the way I like to look at things. I want people who want to come in and, and fight for everything. So um yeah, we'll see where it lands, but I, I'd be really shocked if he doesn't have somebody uh, that that he's either recruited or, you know, they kind of messed with it Ole Miss that might have gone the G5 route or something like that that's, that's not in the portal that they kind of know what's going to happen now. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where, too, if, there, there are a lot of quarterbacks in the portal already, but – you know, and they do. I don't think anybody's afraid of competition, or like you said, if they are, then they don't need to come here. But they also want a realistic start, uh, you know, path to a starting job. And I think ECU at this point is as open as any quarterback room in the country. So that I think plays to ECU's favor, along with the fact they got some uh, competition or some NIL competition to finally throw out there as well. Uh, Chad Pike says, Why wouldn't a previous ECU quarterback? be a good fit to hire chad i don't really understand your question are you saying like bringing in an ecu quarterback to coach under john david baker i don't know clarify that if you will and we'll, we'll try to address that uh alan says uh pirate al says the most critical hire will be the o-line hire it all starts and stops with the hogs i hope the o-line coach has already been selected and he has the experience running what will be the JDB offense. Yeah, so according to our sources, uh, it looks like ECU is making a change with the offensive line coach, also with the running backs coach. So new offensive coordinator, Brett, he's got to be able to implement a system. We talked about that. And certainly if your O-line coach and your OC aren't on the same page, it can look bad. I think we saw that this past year at times with ECU. So that's, that's a massive hire for sure. Yeah, the O-line coach is the most important guy. You know, I kind of take my my father was a you know, long-time legendary North Carolina high school coach. He always said your two best football coaches need to be your O-line coach and your secondary coach. 
And um, I've always kind of lived by that. And I, I do think the O-line coach is so important to the offensive coordinator because that's the spot that really makes everything go, whether or not it's scheming up the run game, whether or not that's uh, protections, having to work with the center and the quarterback all together. So my first instinct with with Coach Mogridge being let go is that Baker's got a guy um, that, that he probably would not have taken the job if Coach Houston was not going to allow him to bring his own offensive line coach with him. So we'll see where that works out. But uh, Allen's exactly right. It all it always starts up front on both sides of the ball. You know, win the line of scrimmage, win games. That that will never change as long as they play this sport. Um, if if you can if you can protect the passer and run the football, and you can stop the run on defense, you've always got a chance. How much do you feel like a new offensive line coach will look at the current personnel and the recruits coming in and? I don't know, like, is it really that big a difference, the type of offensive lineman that a offensive line coach, does that vary as much as people think it does? Yeah, I mean, obviously, got each coach has its own his own little niche and, and idiosyncrasies as it relates to recruiting and what type of player he likes, you know, and uh, how they evaluate talent and how they evaluate, you know, what they want out of each position at and it's it's really nuanced stuff, you know. And and it, sometimes it goes to okay, how do I coach this double team versus how does this guy coach this double team, or how does this guy coach uh, this type of pass set versus that? And I'll, that's kind of getting in the weeds. So it's no it's no different than any other position, you know. Guys have different variants of opinion on on how to play certain techniques. Um, that was not a very good unit this year to say the least i mean let, let's just get real um i think the thing that I, that I was probably a little bit disappointed in is yeah i mean we can talk about they, they haven't recruited great at that position obviously when you start looking at uh, who they've signed over the course of the last three or four years and who's a who's a productive player at ECU and there's not many of them but that being said there's guys who played worse this year than they did the previous year um so you know that's a referendum on the coaching change it is what it is guys who played for Shank didn't play at as high of a level last year now some of it might have been you know in the case of one guy moving from the right side to the left side and sometimes that does make a big difference because the guy's used to playing with this foot up and that foot up and all that kind of good jazz that we don't have to get into, but um, you know we'll see uh, what what happens. But my guess is Coach Baker's got a guy he feels good about, and he'll be bringing him with him to uh, ECU. All right, Chad Pike has clarified his question. He said, "Yeah, why wouldn't a previous ECU quarterback be a good fit to hire?" He's saying like, "Yes, like a quarterback coach." So John David Baker will be the quarterbacks coach now. We, we get this, Brett, and you probably have heard it as much as anybody. Hey, bring back Shane Carden sure. uh, as quarterback's coach or hey, bring him back as OC. Uh, people say, hey, bring back Holden Aylers as quarterback's coach. I've always said, look, I've got no problem with those guys coming back as a GA or an analyst, but you just can't come back. And, you know, no offense to Shane, he's doing a good job as a high school coach in Idaho, but you can't go from that to calling plays at ECU. Like, there's a process to it. So, could he come as a GA or an analyst if he wants to make that leap and then in a few years be a very quality quarterback or OC maybe, but it, it's just easier said than done. Just because a guy was a great college quarterback doesn't make him a fit for 
a quarterback coach at ECU. Um, so I mean, the world the world is full of guys who are great players. Then I I have no idea how good of a coach Shane is. I, this is completely this is absolutely no referendum on his coaching or any other former ECU coach that's ECU player that's out there coaching. Heck, there's a lot of them that are great high school coaches and. Hey, East Carolina's got a former uh, quarterback who's probably about to coach the Heisman Trophy winner. Which is, and he's now, getting some head coach head coaching. Shane Carden well. was a lot better player than Joe Sloan. I do know that, and I'll, I'll tell Sloaner that in a in a heartbeat. But um, you know, the world's full of guys who are great players that can't coach their way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, let's look at all these college basketball coaches who were you know longtime NBA guys that that you know they just they're not very good coaches. And uh, the same same thing with football all over the place, and uh, and then, but there's some that are great coaches. There's some guys who um, who can do them both. And I, I if I know anything about Shane as a as a player, you know he had all the qualities that you would need to be a great coach. Uber competitive and uh, you know incredibly bright and intellectual. But uh, you know it's a big step up to go from being player to offensive coordinator or quarterback coach with with limited to. Uh, no college experience, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a chain that you do. You end up, you do the GA thing, you do the analyst thing, and then you hop into it. Just like John David Baker. He was a GA. He was an analyst, tight ends coach, co-OC, and now he's the OC. Like there's a process to it. Right. Um, sometimes you got to get a little lucky, Brad. I mean, coaching is a crazy industry. You got to get, be in the right place at the right time, right connection. So it all uh, it all comes full circle. All right, Michael says, has there been any comments yet from the current commits, especially the O-line recruits? I have not reached out to the commits because I've been waiting uh, to give uh, Baker some time to get into the role. I think this week when he hits the road recruiting, I will start reaching out. Like I know he's supposed to go see Cole Hodge, the quarterback commit, so we'll talk to him uh, at some point this week and get some feedback. But trying to give him time to get his feet wet in the uh, position. Justin is in the chat. He says, what's up, guys? Yeah, again, if you got a question on Facebook or YouTube, drop it in. We'll get to it. All right, Brandon, we've kind of already gotten into this. Being he's coming from the SEC, what kind of offense is he expect to run here at East Carolina? So we talked about that. But, Brett, what would you say and, – and, Brandon, you can go back and listen to the archive version and kind of hear the scheme breakdown. You know, we, we've kind of texted – and. You've indicated speed is going to be a big part of this at the skill positions. I mean, obviously, if you're going to test teams vertically, horizontally, you got to have some speed at skill spots. And that's a that's a weakness for ECU right now. I mean, you've got Javius Bond at running back, but you don't have too many burners offensively. So I think that's an area they're going to have to hit in the portal. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you got to get guys who can take the top off the defense. When I – so the guys that are running this offense right now of like-minded of the of what Coach Kiffin's been doing, you know, Jeff Levy at Oklahoma ran it. Josh Heupel at Tennessee runs a version of it. You got to get guys who can blow the top off the defense. Um, you know, so the passing game starts with vertical concepts, what they call the vertical choice. Um, so the outside guys kind of, you know, if he's even, he's leaving – if the guy's playing off coverage, he's going to turn it into a, you know, basic curl route. You know, they can also turn it back into running right back down the sideline route. But, you know, if you're going to 
if you're going to play the guys it's as simple as you can make it, if you're going to play the safeties deep and play, you know, four shell coverage on the back end, you got to be able to run the ball, you know, block five for five, six for six or whatever you're doing. But, you know, if they're going to send guys up, you know, the willingness to throw the football down the field, um, I, I don't think, I don't think that's unique to the SEC. I don't think it's unique to the AAC. I mean, I think that that type of offense can work. Um, really from high school football all the way to the National Football League, and, and you're seeing uh, versions of it all over the place, even at the highest level of, of football. So, um, you know, it, it, it can work at East Carolina the same way it works at Ole Miss. I would argue it's probably got a better chance of working at the G5 level than it does the SEC just because I'm, the corners are not as good, you know, and the ability to lock up and play man-to-man um, is is not – is is not there the way it is um, at the uh, at the southeastern conference level, of course. Uh, Aaron Watson says, "Do we think the tight end utilization will be better?" Um, I mean, I feel like it's it almost has to be. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, a lot of the Ole Miss stuff, there was uh, you know a lot of eleven personnel, so I feel like we'll, we'll continue to see that, but maybe some different variations of it. We'll see how the tight end room looks next year. Brett, Shane Calhoun does have a year of eligibility remaining. You've got the two freshmen, Antonio Ferguson, DeSirio Riles, who uh, got some experience this year. So what do you think tight end utilization? Do you feel like that will be an improvement with this offense? Yeah, I mean, we didn't utilize anything last year, guys. (laughs) Like the receiver utilization wasn't good. The running game utilization wasn't good. But, like, I would argue that Donnie did a really good job using Ryan Jones. He definitely did. That that guy had five or 600 yards receiving, and he caught a lot of balls. So, like, I don't know if it was just a tight end problem. It was a – crappy offensive problem across the board. I mean, it is what it is. You know, we didn't use the tight end, but we we catch the ball at receiver. We we didn't run the ball very well. You know, we didn't, didn't pass didn't protect very well. Didn't pass protect. Didn't run protect. So, like, it's hard to put a re- it's hard to put it just on the play calling from a uh, from a tight end. But the guy did coach the tight ends at Ole Miss, as as Luke just said in the chat. So. My guess is I've, I've sat in staff meetings my whole life. Now, I haven't coached offense a lot. I've only coached offense for two years, but I do know when you're in there and you think you got a good player, you spend a lot of time kind of fighting for your guy and how to get him the ball. So he's probably got some ideas that are that are tight end centric, having coached that position. Um, you know, I, I haven't, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I was an old Miss football aficionado, um, but. You know, they've moved the football, and I guess they probably used the tight end fairly well. No doubt. They they actually added the uh, the Memphis kid, uh, Caden Prescorn, this past year, who just – he killed ECU last season. And I think he had a pretty good year for Ole Miss as a transfer this year. Um, so, uh, it'd be nice to get a guy of his talent to utilize at that position. I think Calhoun could be a solid player. And I think DeSirio and, and Antonio will as well. But it, we'll see how that room looks year over year. When you look at the offense right now, Brett, like what are the redeeming, returning qualities as far as personnel? Like, I think you got somebody in Chase Sewell. I think you've got a guy in Javius Bond. You know, if Rajay Harris comes back, you got an experienced back who finally kind of looked more like himself in the Tulsa game. So I feel pretty good about running back and Chase Sewell and maybe the tight end room. You do have some offensive linemen returning. 
with experience. So the play has been up and down. So what do you make of the personnel and like, you know, at, at this point, given what we know? Yeah, it's kind of a chicken or egg theory, you know, or chicken and egg kind of argument. Like, was the personnel not as redeeming because they, you know, couldn't hold up in protection or they didn't have anybody that could get them the ball? Um, I would say this about the scheme that's been used the last couple of years. What what Donnie did a great job of in 20, I guess that was 2022, is he had a dude on the outside, and it wasn't as much about scheming him up. If he had a one-on-one, they were going to take a shot, right? Um, so to our detriment and to our you know kind of double-edged sword deal, that was great because Isaiah could go out and make the play. And when C.J. Johnson moved inside, you were able to take advantage of those one-on-ones, uh, whether or not it was slot fades or little slot post routes or whatever it was. Um so, you know, you had two guys that could win those one-on-one battles, and that's fine. There's That's a very sound offensive philosophy, but it is predicated on having guys that can win one-on-one matchups, right? Um, so that that's the problem is, like, I, I you didn't see any of those guys this year consistently do that. But that being said, like, we're not privy to the all-22 tape. You know, those guys might be out there turning these DBs wide open around, and we just can't get them the ball because we couldn't protect or we couldn't throw it accurately. Um, I did see a lot of drops. You know, that's something that they're going to have to attack. Uh, in the offseason, we got to catch the football better. Um, so it's it's really hard to tell. I, did, I do not think it was a very talented football team. And I, I backed um, – now, coaches are responsible for that, too, now. This is not high school football. High school guys, you coach what you got most of the time, and it is what it is. So the coaches are still accountable for the product they put on the field. Uh, but I, I always lean more toward the side that it was as much of a problem of personnel deficiency as much as it was scheme. Um, so they got to get better players. And, um, you know, that that they're working on that right now. Um, but there, there's some guys there, you know, Chase, I think it's going to be all right. I think Shane Calhoun's a solid player. And I think there's some guys um, – I think there's some guys in the running back room. And, and there are some linemen that you can build around. Here's the deal with offensive linemen, guys. You know, the devil you know sometimes is better than the guy that you don't know, that you don't have. And everybody talks about these guys, well, do we want them back? If they've played college football, you want them back. Yes. Because you, you want eight or nine guys that can play there. Um, and and you want them to get better, you want them to get bigger, and you want them to get stronger. Because if you're out there searching in the portal for a bunch of offensive linemen that can play at the FBS level, there's not a lot of them. And if they are, they're getting scooped up. I mean, there's a reason there's a kid from in Division two ranks that's been offered by everybody in the country, including East Carolina. You know, he's going to wind up at Clemson or Oregon or somewhere like that because everybody's looking for the same one. Yeah, that's six six and can move and got great hip flexion, and those guys are unicorns. There's just not a lot of them out there. So if you've got any on your roster that have any redeeming qualities, you got to keep them and you got to coach them up, and they got to play better. No doubt. I mean, there's a reason the Sod Strother got $300,000 to go be a backup at Oregon. So, I mean, right. it's, it's just there's there's not enough of them. And he was a solid player at DCU, but he wasn't even an all-conference guy. So everybody's searching for him. You got to be creative and you always got to develop them. And uh, I, I do think if you can get like one good tackle, one number one receiver, and this is a lot easier said than done, I should clarify, and a quarterback, if you can get those three pieces and a couple more, 
I think everybody else can kind of slide in and be a little better than they were last year based upon being able to take a little pressure off them. And we'll see. They just got to find a way to hit on those. Uh, speaking of that, Brandon asked, the transfer portal opens tomorrow. That is correct, Brandon. It'll be open officially tomorrow. Guys have already been declaring, and then they'll enter tomorrow, and you'll have some new guys entering tomorrow. Brett will no longer be able to sleep starting tomorrow uh, as uh, that starts for every coach. The portal has actually been open already. Yeah. It's always open for graduate transfers or guys who lose their coach. But tomorrow it's going to be mass chaos. Yeah, and, uh, every, every kind of what I'm hoping is a lot of these guys we've been recruiting for a few weeks in Anderson, as there's 9,000 kids who are going to enter tomorrow, kind of get buried beneath everybody and mm-hmm. nobody can find them. So, yeah, it's chaos, and it's going to be chaos. Um, but, yes, it opens for undergraduates tomorrow. Uh, Chuck says, if we get a quarterback in the portal, how much will it cost? Do we have money allocated for this position? Uh, Chuck, so I've heard that ECU is is thinking they'll probably have to spend around a hundred grand, maybe a little more than that, uh, closer to two hundred for a quarterback at their tier. Look, I mean, there's going to be quarterbacks that get millions of dollars. There's going to be quarterbacks that get 300 to 600,000 close to a million dollars. I don't think ECU is going to be able to navigate in that space. I think that's more I think that's more of you know the Power 5, the SEC, etc., the schools with the big time money, but you can still get a very good quarterback for the money ECU has I think in the in the NIL collective. I, I don't know, Brad. You probably don't have to deal with this as much, but do you do you hear any talks of what quarterbacks are being offered right now? Uh, it, you know, across college football. Tell you what NIL means at the Division Two level. Nothing in locker. <laughs> so no, I mean you hear all kinds of mess, but you have no. I mean we're sit, we're sitting here right here in Clemson country, about twenty miles away, and we're only about an hour from Georgia. So, I mean you hear the nonsense that that fans throw around out here. You don't know what's true and what's not. I mean it's just. It is what it is. My my thing is is that there's not that many schools who have that kind of money. You know, from an East Carolina perspective, you start you start kind of getting overwhelmed by the 65 arbitrary P5 schools. But like Wake Forest don't have half a million to give a quarterback. You know, Duke probably doesn't either. And you know, you hear about Texas A&M and Georgia and Alabama and all these guys. But like, you know, if you got 50 grand around, you can get somebody. I would, I would imagine, but again, I, I'm speaking from pure speculation and and not a very educated opinion as it pertains to this this new world of college football. And as far as I'm concerned, right now, those guys can have it. Yeah, a lot less stress on Brett's plate at the D2 level with that for sure. Uh, we'll get a few more questions and we'll get out of here. So if you got any questions, drop them now. Uh, we had a question earlier. Let's see if I can find it here. Uh, from Chuck, he says, if Blake Carroll goes, who do we get for defensive coordinator? Um, I think you go in-house, right? I mean, it's got to be Roy Tess or Trip Weaver just based off the fact they know this defense and you could probably keep it together. What do you think, Brett? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're playing well, that side of the ball and and things are going well, then if you've got somebody in in the program that you believe has – not only the knowledge of the defense, but the, but the requisite uh, leadership skills that it takes to lead a room, then you just promote from within. Um, if if the defense falls apart, then we're going to be looking for a new head football coach, you know. So um, 
and I don't expect the defense to fall apart. Let me say that. I think I think the world of uh, Coach Harrell and the job that and and Mike Houston's a good defensive coach too. You know, let's not get lost in all that. You know, that I know it wasn't a great season, but uh, you know, the guys got decades worth of of putting a good product on the field. And I realize it probably hadn't been up to the standard that everybody thought it would have at East Carolina, but, um, you know, I feel really good about the defense. They've, they've, the hit rate of recruiting has been much higher on that side of the ball. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the consistency in the, in the staff, you know, and, and having some, having some consistency year to year with with Roy with Tripp with with Blake you know I think it's just allowed for you know linear growth on that side of the ball with it with it really being uh the product that we've been waiting on on that side of the ball this year and uh if they can get a little bit of help offensively and be off the field a little bit more you know good lord knows the sky might be the limit and that might be a top 20 defense next year I think or at least that's what I'm hoping yeah, and honestly, just from talking with folks, and again, very early in the offseason, things can change quickly with the portal, with coaching. You know, it feels like Blake Carroll right now doesn't have anything that's prying him away from ECU. Again, things can always change. With the key defensive players, it feels like they're pretty locked in. You know, you, you, you never know because when they go home for, for Christmas yeah. break, families get in their ear agents, whatever, get in their ear and can change their mind. But it just feels like right now that group is is ready to come back. And, and they don't want to leave ECU at 2-10. and 10. A lot of that group is a junior, senior class, uh, rising senior class. I think they, they feel motivated to come back and win with some offensive players. All right. Um, Brandon says, saw today East Carolina offered Ty Keys. Uh, that happened a while ago. Uh, but he is the number one JUCO quarterback. So, yeah, I mean, if ECU wants to go the JUCO route, I would expect, you know, Keys was that Southern Miss. He's a mobile guy. I think if you bring him in, he's definitely not the only quarterback you bring in, but he could fit this offensive scheme potentially. So that's that's something John David Baker is going to have to look at and make a call on. And we'll, we'll just have to continue to monitor the quarterback situation moving forward. Brett, as we get close to wrapping things up here, what two or three things are you really going to be monitoring the next week, two weeks as we move forward to kind of see how this this offensive plan comes together? Like, what are you most honed in on as you follow uh, your beloved Pirates? Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it starts with the trigger position. Um, you know, what are, what's what are his plans at quarterback? What does he like? You know, and just. And I'll be honest, I probably won't have much time to really dive in on a whole lot of it. But what's he looking for in a quarterback? Does he want a guy who can run a little bit? You know, what what kind of system has the guy played in before? Um, I thought that'll kind of tell you a little bit. Uh, the other thing I'm interested in, you know, is, is staffing. You know, what what kind of guy? What kind of background uh, is the O line guy? He bringing in with him? Uh, what what does he have? Obviously, I think he'll have some autonomy in the running back position. Uh, what happens to the rest of the offensive staff, both on the field and off the field, the, the, the remaining full-time coaches and the analysts. Um, and and then I, I think there's some interesting questions to be asked to the head football coach. I think that's um, a, a bad leader allows things that are obviously not working to continue to happen. You know, a transcendent leader sees the problems before they actually – 
exist, which is what makes Nick Saban the greatest coach of all time, you know, for instance, kind of morphing into this modern style of offense before uh, he really needed to. You know, they won the national championship, and two years later, um, you know, he went from handing it off and beating LSU 17-6 to to throwing it all over the place, and he kind of saw it. Uh, but a good leader does what Mike Houston does too. You know, he didn't lose the locker room last year, um, but there are questions. Is he going to be totally comfortable with – um, playing a style of offense that is not in the traditional sense of bleeding the clock, running the football, um, you know, run, run, punt, or, you know, run, play action, you know, whatever. So, I mean, I, th- I think there's going to be questions, but it does sound like with with how – this is me and you spitballing right here, but, I, you know, I think Alan Mogerts was his guy on the offensive line and the fact that he let him go to, to let uh, Coach Baker kind of make the call maybe on the O-line coach or on, on other guys, it kind of tells me he's letting go of the reins a little bit. And, um, you know, like I said at the, at the top of the at the top of the podcast right here, you know, he's he's not he, – he, Mike Houston is not swimming or swinging for a single right now. He's trying to hit a home run. And he kind of understands a single may or may not have saved his job, but a strikeout, he's going to lose it. And if it doesn't get better, uh, he won't be the head football coach at East Carolina next year. And uh, whether or not he made this decision on his own, which, you know, agents rule the world. I think that's important to know that, you know, if Jimmy Sexton's his agent, he kind of got a list of names probably from that world. But then he made a decision to go with something – uh, that's different than anything he's ever ran offensively. And uh, I think that says a lot about how committed he is to fixing it. But if it doesn't work out, that, you know, he's got a career price to pay. And and But that tells me that that he is confident that he's made the right call. And uh, I think he'll answer the questions the right way. But, again, as we all know, you know the proof's in the pudding. We're all from Missouri when it comes to college football. We're in a show-me state. And, uh, you know, that's what we're looking about um, going forward. And uh, I, I do think it was the right decision when you started talking about the um, the guys. And uh, I, yeah, hopefully Coach Baker is the right guy at the right time. I've said all along, it, it, it feels like to me it's either going to be the Mike Houston revenge tour and the Pirates win big next year or the opposite happens. And I guess it, much like this year, Two and ten, if not worse. But I don't know. Just it, every time I talk to Coach Houston or people around the program, he's like, "We're not going through what we did last year again." Uh, he didn't. He did not lose the locker room, and yeah. people people think that's coach speak, but those kids kept fighting, and that tells me a lot. You know, in in my opinion, if if they're still fighting for him, there's a prayer, and I, you know, if this team figures it out offensively. You can turn it around quick, and I won't be surprised if, if they do and they're back at seven or eight wins again next year. But I'm kind of like the rest of the Pirate Nation now, man. It's it's now or never. It's got to get done or, or we're going to be looking for another coach, which I, I don't want. I want Mike Houston to succeed. No doubt. Uh, a couple of late questions we'll get to, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, I do want to announce – uh, so if you missed our 75% off VIP sale and Hoist the Colors with the transfer portal starting tomorrow, we're going to have another sale through 24-7 Sports, 60% off. So make sure to subscribe. It'll be a three-day period. 
for all your VIP content. This will take you through next year, annual price, recruiting, all that sort of stuff, uh, transfer portal news, continual coaching changes, all that. We will have your you covered just like we covered the OC search. And uh, our longtime subscribers, you get a free subscription to Paramount Plus. Uh, instructions on how to activate that are at the top of our message board. Um, and then we also said earlier, make sure you subscribe to the Hoist the Colors 94.3 The Game podcast channel. Get a lot of questions about uh, where's the Hoist the Colors podcast. Well, we do it in addition to our radio show. A lot of people get that mixed up as well. All right, any idea from Chad? He says, any idea who else we actually talked to about being the offensive coordinator? We discussed that at the beginning of the show, uh, Bailey from Ohio State and also Chad Morris from The Mix. And John David Baker got the job. There may have been others as well, but those were the two main guys we heard. All right, lastly, we'll close with this because who knows how long we'll go. (laughs) Brandon says, not an ECU topic. How do you all feel about Alabama getting to the college football playoff over an undefeated FSU team? I mean, for me, it's pretty simple, Brett. Like, it's the most deserving versus the best team argument. And the best, you know, the better team to me is Alabama. Florida State, I feel like it's at this stage. Early. Yeah, absolutely. With Travis out. And so I hate it for Florida State. I can see both sides. It's just it, it just sucks to go 13 and 0 and be left out of a 14 playoff. But you know, with yeah, Travis I, out, you, you can make an argument both ways. No, I mean you can't watch that that team Florida State put on the field and, and think they'd have a chance to win it. Um, but it's also hard for me as a football coach to be able to stomach a, sitting in front of your team who won every football game and not have a chance to play for a national title. But that that stems from the fact that we got a, there is a systematic problem in major college football that doesn't exist anywhere else in sports. You know, we got a we don't we don't have a playoff. We have an invitational. You know, so any anywhere there's a system in which a team can win every game it plays and not have a chance to play for a national championship is ridiculous. It doesn't exist at the FCS level. It doesn't exist at the Division II level. It doesn't exist at the Division III level. It doesn't exist at the high school level. It doesn't exist in the National Football League. It doesn't exist in college basketball, Major League Baseball, whatever. If you win your conference from the SEC all the way down to the MAC, you should have a chance to be in a tournament to play for a national title. So some of this is going to be alleviated by getting to 12, but the fact that we don't have automatic bids for every conference champion is asinine and stupid, and it's been stupid forever. Um, But, you know, again, to me, this is a a true playoff would have that if you want to have the top 16 teams, take the 10 conference champions and then add the six best teams, but give everyone – uh, at the level, a chance to play for a national championship. So that's how I feel. I do think Alabama's better than Florida State at this stage. So, you know, under the current system, I think they got it right. But it sucks. It's also uh, – I, I think it's going to be the end of the ACC. I think, you know, these people down here in, in Tiger country are, are about ready to leave. And I think Florida State will leave the first chance. They can really make it work. And then there's a few more schools in the ACC that the SEC or the Big Ten would – would flounder over and then that could actually affect East Carolina because if you have an ACC leftover of, you know, Wake Forest and Duke and Virginia Tech or whatever, you know, you could see East Carolina kind of being in a, in a ACC or an AAC uh, 
with the, with the ACC leftovers, which would actually be good for our program, uh, in in my estimation. Yeah, we just ECU's just got to stop crapping the bed every time conference realignment. Every freaking time. Every man. time. I mean, it's, it's like unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it's like you can only shake your head. They're probably in the Big East if they don't fall apart late in the Logan era. Well, they probably would have been in the Big East um, at the at the turn of the century. And then, of course, you know, the Big East again uh, in in the late roughing years. It just has never has never worked out. And it's it's really uh, frustrating and it's sad because I hate the arbitrary G5 power five level um, type stuff. But the reality is, is that when when East Carolina is good at football, that environment is on par with anybody. And uh, I've been at a lot of places in the country. I've been, I've seen multiple games in my life in Raleigh, in Blacksburg, in Chapel Hill, in Columbia, um, you know, Clemson, Athens. I've been to all of them. And when Dowdy Ficklin is rocking, it's as good as any of them, if not better. And uh, I think that's the thing that probably frustrates me and and everybody that's on your site as much as anything. No doubt. All right. So all right, this is seriously the last one. Because you're a Jamie Chadwell guy. Uh, Ryan King, not the ECU receiver, but a different Ryan King says, uh, shaking my head, uh, or he says SMU for Liberty for the group of five. Um, look, man, 133 ranked strength of schedule out of 133 teams. I can't, I can't get on board with that. I give credit to Liberty for winning every game, but SMU, I mean, if Liberty had SMU schedule, I don't think they go 13 and 0. And this is just an argument, you know, you can make it both ways again. Chadwell did a heck of a job there. You're one Liberty for those that don't realize it has tremendous resources, a ton of unbelievable, money. unbelievable. They don't, you know, everybody looks at Liberty as a notch below a team like ECU. And it's just not, not true. Um, so credit Liberty, to Liberty has the chance. Liberty has the chance yeah. to be a perennial top 15 program with, so the, much with, the, with the resources they've got. They, I mean, they got more money than, than they can print. So, what do you think? Did, did did Chadwell and his boys deserve it, or should you have? Uh, would you have liked to seen SMU get in? They won every game they played, so it's hard to say they didn't deserve it. Uh, do I think they're better than SMU? Uh, probably not, but you know, it, 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 again, it's a systematic problem of right. where we're at. They both should be in a national tournament, playing for a national championship. I it's mean, so dumb. Yeah, it's a stupid. It's a stupid rule. I mean, we let the champion of Conference USA in the basketball tournament every year, and you know, I, wasn't it was FAU in the yeah, Conference last USA year? That, last year they went pretty far. They went. They won four games. So you know, now that that would not happen in football. You know, I don't. I don't think a Conference USA team could win a 32-team tournament in football, but they deserve the opportunity to play for it, just like SCBU does. And, uh, you know, systematic problem. I'm glad for Jamie. I like Jamie. I love Jamie. He gave me my start in coaching, and uh, he's going to continue to do great things there. Um, but, again, whatever. I mean, I, to me, I'm still pissed that the Pirates are not in that discussion and, and really haven't flirted with it yet. So, no doubt. Uh, ho- hopefully that'll happen in the future. We get Jamie Chadwell, Mike Houston in 2024. So that'll be, uh, <laughs> we'll have to get you back on the podcast going into that game. Well, I'll be coaching, but I've got some, uh, 
I got some interesting VIP stories on that relationship. <laughs> All right, Brett, this has been fun, man. Appreciate the time. Know you're busy, and uh, we had a ton of viewers, a uh, ton of interest. So we'll get you back on uh, down the road, man, uh, when you get some free time. But glad to hook up once again and excited about the future of Pirate football with John David Baker in this offense. So appreciate all the time, man. Thanks, Stephen, and go Pirates. All right, that's Brett Hickman. I'm Stephen Igo. We will be back uh, with the Hoist the Colors podcast at a later date. Again, subscribe to the Hoist the Colors 94.3 The Game channel. We'll be back on Monday at 12 noon with our live edition. We'll also have a press conference with John David Baker and I believe Mike Houston Monday at 1. We'll have full comments, full video from that as well on our Hoist the Colors YouTube page. We'll talk to you next time.